Hi and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy with current philosophers. My name is Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side I have... Signe Savén, PhD student in practical philosophy, also at the Department of Philosophy at Lund University. And today we have Jonas Hansson, senior lecturer, and Fritz Govertsson, researcher at the Division of History of Ideas and Sciences at the Department of Arts and Cultural Sciences at Lund University. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You are here today to speak about the Somerville Group. So let's start with this. Who were the Somerville Group? What did they do? The Somerville Group was four women in uh, Britain um, who all became uh, famous philosophers on their own, you could say. But uh, people have lately discovered that they actually were, uh, uh, at least uh, uh, under certain periods, close friends. Uh, And uh, they belonged to the same generation and they all studied in Oxford and uh, belonged uh, to the Somerville College. And they were Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, Mary Midgley and uh, Philippa Foote and uh, Iris Murdoch. So were they known as the Somerville Group back in the day or is this like a construction? Oh no, the, the, the label, the Somerville Group or the wartime group or the wartime quartet as they're sometimes called, this is a rather recent uh, recent idea. It's, it's rather recently that people have picked up on the commonalities of their thought because in one sense, it's not really that surprising that these four philosophers weren't read together, weren't seen as doing a joint project, because what they are individually sort of famous for are sort of rather divergent things. Philippa Foote might perhaps be most known to people on this uh, podcast for, for the famous trolley cases, for instance, whereas Elizabeth Anscombe is most, mostly famous for her monograph intention. Uh, both things that I think have been on under discussion in this podcast. Yes, before. there's two episodes, one on each of these topics, so that's that's true. Right. And then on the other hand, Murdoch is, if she's known as a philosopher at all, rather than as a as a uh, as an uh, an author of fiction, uh, is perhaps mostly famous for a sort of uh, Simon Weil inspired uh, Platonism. Whereas Mary Midgley is perhaps made most famous for, for a sort of very public row with Richard Dawkins over his book, The Selfish Gene, where Midgley just points out that genes aren't selfish, people are. So what speaks in favour of regarding them as a group as opposed to regarding them separately? Just as a collection of friends. That are sort of, well, there are a number of things, I think. Uh, one thing is a sort of common, I think, understanding of metaphysics that they all sort of pick up on. So one uh, one rather common way of understanding metaphysics as, as something that's rather closely tied to the natural sciences, where you think that, uh, you know, Aquinian idea that uh, whatever you know, should be on our list of stuff that exists, our ontology is just the stuff that is absolutely necessary for our best scientific theories to function. 
Another understanding is a more Aristotelian notion where, uh, where what's sort of at stake is what's most fundamental, what grounds what become a sort of central research question. Uh, and then if that's sort of uh, Aquinian sense and an Aristotelian sense, then I think there is also a sort of uh, depictivistic metaphysical outlook or something. I don't know really what to call it, but it's the idea that what the metaphysician does is sort of scrutinize the images, uh, our sort of the stories we tell about the world and our plays in it. And I think they are all sort of in line with that idea that harkens back to Plato. In that we can find in a number of philosophers throughout history this idea of metaphysics as a uh, a way of scrutinizing images of thought. But how how come that they have this similar understanding of metaphysics? Do they have the same teacher? Do they have the same background? Uh, Educational-wise? Uh, if, if we say something more uh, about their education at Oxford, then perhaps we can come to your question. Absolutely. So uh, the three of them, uh, Mitchley, uh, uh, Murdoch and Anscombe, they studied the famous program at Oxford called Litera Humaniores, with lots of ancient history, Latin, Greek, and of course philosophy. Uh, whereas uh, Philippa Foote, she studied uh, PPE, uh, philosophy, politics, economics. So her education is a bit different. Um, and uh, those at Somerville, they had as a tutor a philosopher called uh, Donald McKinnon who was also, or later became, a theologian. And he was very much interested in this old-fashioned uh, uh, metaphysics, or, or this topic, and the philosophical topic that was regarded as wholly outdated in the 40s when the, they had him as a tutor. But he preserved, you could say, this uh, old interest in, in metaphysics at Oxford. And so they got perhaps this interest in, in metaphysics from McKinnon. But of course, after the uh, Second World War, they de developed their own philosophies and, and, and uh, their own approach to metaphysics, which uh, isn't uh, necessarily similar. There, you can perhaps see uh, a common uh, attitude uh, in this group, but uh, their, their final philosophies aren't very similar, uh, I should say. Maybe Fritz has yeah. another no, uh, th That is true. We, we shouldn't overemphasize the sort of group narrative, perhaps. They're, they're, they do make important contributions on their own. These contributions are, are distinct. But there are other things that are sort of in common. They, they, they are all, to various degrees and so on, skeptical about the fact-value distinction, for one thing. 
Can you say something about that? What is that? Right, so the, the 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 fact value distinction is simply the idea that there is a, a very hard divide between factive and and the valuative, so that uh, uh, and that the, these are fully separatable. This is an idea that uh, perhaps mostly uh, mostly associated with uh, David Hume, um, but. If that separation is uh, as thoroughgoing as the human would have it, um, certain terms seem to become problematic. Thick value concepts, concepts that are seem to be both descriptive and normative, sort of normative descriptive words, if you like, to use a, a phrase of Murdoch's. Um, the it, it's um, words like. Uh, Eritaic concepts tend to be these thick notions. The, our virtue terms so, are thick. That something is courageous is both descriptive and normative uh, at the same time. And these these kinds of terms, this way of talking, seems rather problematic, to say the least, if we believe in this very sort of sharp divide between the factive and the normative. And if we come back to the particular attitude, which I think is the most important, perhaps, about this group, uh, their attitude were one of a rebellion against the then dominant analytic philosophy uh, at Oxford, uh, represent, represented by uh, people like Gilbert Ryle, Alfred Eyre, and uh, John Austin for example, and, and Richard Hare in uh, moral philosophy. And uh, so they they had uh, w- this project that they would sort of overturn their dominance, in, in not only at Oxford, but in uh, the philosophical world. Can you say something about how they differ from their ideas? What, what were they opposing regarding Hare and et al.'s ideas? Yeah, as Fritz mentioned, there, there was this fact-value distinction, uh, which uh, which rendered the discussion about values quite meaningless. Uh, but they thought that was very important. Uh, and uh, as we talked about earlier, metaphysics could be uh, regarded as a uh, an interesting project for. Uh, contemporary philosophers also, uh, according to this group. And, um, well, uh, div- uh, and of course, uh, within moral philo- philosophy, we have uh, this uh, um, renaissance for virtue ethics, at this, at, like it was later called. Um, and they at least Anscombe and Foot were very important for for this this uh, renaissance and when you say they in this context how they reacted to the views at the time do you mean they as a group or individually were there some kind of joint effort on their behalf back then the, no they did they, they never worked as a group and that makes perhaps this uh, group concept or group narrative uh, difficult so, and and it doesn't 
if, if we call them the Somerville group or the quartet as uh, some uh, uh, philosophers want to call them uh, uh, this this narrative doesn't explain everything and uh, it doesn't uh, explain the I, I would say their later philosophy but it can be valuable to understand their attitude, uh, oppositional attitude, when in their younger days, in, in which was then in, in the 40s and early 50s. Mary Mitchley even speaks of a joint no. She 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 very much portrays them in a late in an interview given late in life. She portrays uh, the four of them as engaged in this deeply oppositional projects, a way of saying no to, for one thing, the fact-value distinction, no to sort of general run of British emotivist ethical thinking, the, the, the idea that uh, value judgments are at bottom just reports of emotional states or uh, prescriptive uh, commands almost, as they are for, for Richard Hare, which is a sort of an idea deeply rooted in, in uh, British philosophy, again going back to Hume and Hutchison and that kind of, uh, the Earl of Chaffsbury, for, for, uh, for example. And this, um, this kind of emotivist idea, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's nice in a way since it 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 gets us off cheap, right? Metaphysically speaking, that there are no real real facts about values. There's it's a kind of projectivism. The the world is sort of empty and cold and boring and horrible and meaningless, and then we sort of spray paint the world with with our emotions, and it all comes into glorious bloom. That that's that kind of picture. Uh, though you also get uh, Murdoch is keen to point out with uh, existentialists, so she's saying that you know Sartre and those people are basically the same as Air and Hair, and in in that it's it's this empty, cold, meaningless world where we sort of uh, project value and meaning onto it, uh, but this. In the light of uh, the, the horrors of the Second World War, seems hard to swallow for some, including uh, the members of, of, the, of the group. Could you expand a bit on that? How the context of the war contributed to their thinking? So, so the idea is that there's, for one thing, there's this very sort of—it's it, a famous story of, of basically Philippa Foot going to to the cinema. And there's this uh, newsreel footage. I, I, I can't remember what the actual film she's. I don't think she even stays for the for the main feature film. Uh, it's just this newsreel clip uh, of uh, 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 of a con- concentration camp. The first sort of first real hard evidence that the Br- British public is is. Uh, uh, is shown of, of the horror that's been happening, and she just goes home from that experience, feeling that you know everything has changed now, and much of her 
a career can as, actually be sort of can be construed as various attempts at making sure that Nazis aren't just evil, they're also irrational. But the general run in, in the group is a sort of drive towards various kinds of naturalistic, non-reductive realism in the light of that seems to be the only way that we can make sure that there's real evil there. We need to be able to talk about real evil. It's not just emotive responses or projected meanings. And uh, I understand that also Wittgenstein's thoughts played a role for the group and how they formed their own thoughts. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, his, his thoughts were very uh, important for this whole generation of philosophers in Britain, of course. But so you could hardly avoid him. <laughs> but uh, especially Elizabeth Anscombe, who was uh, kind of a favorite student of Witt- Wittgenstein's, uh, was uh, very influenced by him. And sometimes she is labeled a Wittgensteinian. Uh, Uh, but that may also be uh, uh, a bit reductive, uh, like joining her to these uh, some other Somerville philosophers, b- because Elizabeth Anscombe is Elizabeth Anscombe. She's very, uh, she's uh, a very s- s- uh, strong-headed and uh, uh, brilliant, of course, and and. Uh, um, Uh, a philosopher uh, with her own mind. Uh, But uh, she worked uh, very closely with Wittgenstein and when he died she got the job to sort out his uh, papers and uh, publish them and uh, also um, uh, she was uh, chosen to uh, to translate uh, the philosophical investigations into English and sent actually by Wittgenstein to Vienna to learn German, the proper Viennese kind of German, so she could make this translation. Uh, um, But uh, you can also see influences from Wittgenstein in in Iris Murdoch and uh, also in Murdoch's uh, novels Uh, her first breakthrough novel was uh, Under the Net, uh, where there are there is uh, 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 a uh, language uh, infatuated philosopher <laughs> who obvious, obviously is uh, modeled on Wittgenstein. Yeah, and uh, there's also this. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say that all of them in the various ways, adopt something like the Wittgensteinian idea of, of a, of a for, uh, form of life, forms des Lebens. Uh, the idea that proper understanding of... Uh, proper proper philosophical investigation of language and thought needs to be taken into account the entirety of our meaning-making processes, uh, the social um, and also for this group, rather importantly, biological basis of 
of how language is used. You can't just study language as a sort of isolated phenomenon. That, I think, is a sort of... The, the, the very idea of not, not isolating features in a sort of... in a way modelled on laboratory science, right? But rather take all of it in. That kind of thing also, I think, plays a major major part in the methodology. And I think that bit comes from from Wittgenstein. Could you expand a bit on that, maybe give me an example? Uh, one example would be uh, how Anscombe works with concepts in her famous paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, where she discusses uh, terms like moral and, and uh, ought that are, she argues, uh, dependent on a framework uh, of uh, uh, div- divine law conception, she calls it. So uh, uh, when we use the term in uh, philosophy, ought, we, we, uh, we act as if there was a law that uh, commands us to do certain acts. Uh, and that that is why we we say that we ought to do something but so she in this uh, paper uh, puts the concept of ought in an historical framework or or life form you could call it uh, that once worked in, uh, in the middle ages when when everyone believed in god but Later, when uh, philosophers, at least, um, often drops uh, God uh, and the divine command, uh, they still try to uh, keep the term ought as if uh, there still was a God and as if there still was a divine command. So that's an example of how... uh, Uh, Anscombe works with uh, maybe a kind of Wittgensteinian idea of a life form that makes uh, sense out of concepts that are no longer in place. And what happens then to concepts, like moral, for example, when we don't uh, have the, the, the supporting framework. So what does happen to those concepts then? Yeah, uh, according to Anscombe, the, the, we should uh, stop doing moral philosophy. That's what she says in uh, this paper. Uh, but sh- she didn't uh, keep to that uh, promise. <laughs> uh, but but in uh, basically, it's um, ha- the, tame, the term moral is uh, meaningless, according to Anscombe. So Deontic concepts have lost their meaning in the absence of a divine lawgiver. Uh, and what we need, Anscombe says, is a, a, a satisfying, uh, or a, a, at least good enough, uh, philosophy of, of psychology. Uh, and which is exactly what she goes on to develop in, uh, in her book, Intention. So in that sense, she's delivering on her on her promise. She, she's actually giving us what we need in order for, to go forward. And there are various ways in which you could read her article, Modern Moral Philosophy. But at least I think that uh, it's it's a sort of two-way structure. There. So there, there are two ways that we can get out of this problem. 
we could either adopt a Judeo-Christian morality system. We could uh, we could give in to the, to the uh, the divine lawgiver. So that's fine for for Christians, and uh, right. But on the other hand, those that don't. Uh, would instead have to adopt more uh, Eretaic vocabulary, uh, an Aristotelian moral psychology, which is in fact what Anscombe goes on to develop. So in that sense, it's a deeply sort of Thomistic paper, right? It turns out that Christian doctrine and Greek philosophy, and especially the great philosopher Aristotle, are basically saying the same thing. In philosophy, we have the classical divide between analytical and continental philosophy. So where do this group position themselves in, in these uh, two positions? Right. They are, in a way, deeply ingrained in you know Oxbridge philosophy. They're classically Oxford-trained philosophers. It's true, as, as Jonas was talking about earlier, that they weren't trained by the sort of big shots of the era because most of them were drafted into the war service uh, and there were other people like Donald McKinnon or Edward Fenkel to step in and, and tutor them but they are still very much steeped in, a, in an Oxford and Cambridge setting so that would suggest I mean and they are part of the analytical philosophical community they especially Foote and, and Anscombe publish in such a way as to Sort of cater to that that world, but at the same time, there is uh, there are a lot of continental, if you want to use that label, uh, influences in their thought, and they are certainly sort of uh, on the fringes. They are um, like other philosophers that were inspired by them, like uh, Stanley Cavell, or Alistair MacIntyre, Charles Taylor. John McDowell, they are sort of, they are classically trained analytic philosophers, but they're also sort of on the fringes. They, they don't belong to, the, they, they rebel uh, against the analytical mainstream. So in that sense, they are hard to place. And I think that also that sort of Anscombe's Catholicism factors in there, right? The whole Catholic philosophical tradition is also sort of often forgotten when we do these kind of divides between analytical and continental philosophy. Uh, we tend to forget uh, movements such as uh, American pragmatism or American transcendentalism or uh, or Catholic the Catholic philosophical tradition. Uh, and in a way, you could even see Anscombe as one of the founders of what is today known as uh, analytic Thomism. And what is that in more detail? Uh, this would be the idea that you would uh, essentially couple, uh, in the same way that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas sought to couple Christian teaching with uh, mainly Aristotle, uh, Aristotle's philosophy. In the same way, the idea here is that we should couple uh, the work, working methods of analytic philosophy, conceptual analysis, uh, ordinary language philosophy, that, that kind of thing. We should couple the, those methods with uh, a Thomistic philosophical tradition. 
And what would be re the result of that? Just very the, briefly. The result of that would be an interesting research program where we've got uh, figures such as uh, Anscombe's husband, Peter Geach. Uh, in, a, in a very classic paper, he sort of gives what I think is one of the sort of nicest and most economic truth-maker theories of all time. Geach suggests that God is the ultimate truth-maker. It's a very sort of economic system. You, you do a lot with a single postulate. I mean, fair enough. It might be a hard, uh, uh, hard thing to let into your anthology, but once you're okay with postulating the existence of God, there's a lot of work that's just done for you. So in that sense, it's a very sort of economic theory of truth-making. And that this would be a sort of... Uh, a clear example of of this kind of combination, I think. Another one is, is his f famous paper about uh, good as an attributive adjective, right? There, there's no such thing as good simpliciter. It's just good of a kind, so-and-so. The, the strongest connection to the continent is in uh, Iris Murdoch because she was... Uh, after, uh, uh, immediately after the, the Second World War, she she came to Belgium, and then came in contact with the new French philosophy. Uh, f first and foremost, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who she met personally, and uh, she later wrote the very first English book about him. Uh, called Sartre Romantic Rationalist, I think, uh, early 50s. And um, she, But she was also very interested in other contemporary French philosophers, Fritz named uh, Simone Weil, uh, who became very important to uh, Murdoch, but also others uh, known at the time as Gabriel Marcel, uh, and uh, all belonging to a kind of um, existential philosophy, uh, with a in the, in um, the case of Marcel, with a, a Christian touch to it, uh, and also that goes also for Simone Weil. So the, there was a religious interest uh, in Murdoch. Who, uh, which can explain her interest in, in these philosophers, continental philosophers. Um, and uh, of course Wittgenstein was very continental in his mindset in many ways. Not uh, perhaps uh, uh, when he did um, language philosophy, well, you could argue that too, uh, as uh, Alan Janik and, and Stephen Tillman uh, did in the book Wittgenstein's Vienna. There, there was an earlier Viennese language philosophy which may have influenced Wittgenstein. But uh, I, in thinking here, first uh, and foremost uh, about how Wittgenstein uh, view viewed life and culture and uh, everything uh, apart from uh, the philosophical work. And th I think that was an influence uh, on uh, um, not only Elizabeth Anscombe, but also his uh, 
successor uh, at Cambridge, uh, the Finnish uh, philosopher uh, Jeo Henrik von Wricht. So they, um, the, t- Wittgenstein von Wricht and, and Anscombe, uh, von Wricht and Anscombe, they both worked with uh, Wittgenstein's uh, uh, Nachlass, his, uh, his papers. Philosophically, they had much in common, uh, Wittgenstein, von Wricht and Anscombe, but they also have common interests in, in uh, cultural questions. And, and, uh, and uh, this, um, in many ways, a broader outlook on life uh, uh, compared to many of the contemporary British philosophers. Which is also shown, I think, in in when we get to to Swansea and and Bruce Rees, right? It's the same kind of thing that happens there. That there's a later Wittgensteinian heritage in 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 Welsh philosophy. Uh, that's sort of equally important here, I think, leading up to Peter Winch and other such figures trying to to say something about how we show that which we can't really speak about in Wittgensteinian terms. So turning to literature and and art and culture in that sense. Can we say something about the group's legacy? Who did they inspire? What, what, what do we have today? What research is conducted? Right. There's a... We, we are sort of part of a... Sometimes there's talk of a, a sort of second wave of Murdoch scholarship so the first wave sort of early 2000s uh there were a bunch of books and articles came out came out there and then a sort of second wave starts with uh an edited volume called Iris Murdoch uh, a philosopher by Justin Brokes and i suppose i'm myself as sort of part of that second second wave but uh that's just on a sort of personal personal note uh but on the larger stage there, there are a number of philosophers who were sort of really big names massive names in in the 80s and 90s we've got Alistair McIntyre we've got Charles Taylor John McDowell Bernard uh, Williams Bernard Williams all f- philosophers who in various ways were deeply inspired by Uh, by the Somerville group, almost to the point I would argue that we could talk about this as a sort of next generation of... Uh, so um, John McDowell, for instance, uh, uh, was, a, was a student of, of Foots and Anscombe, and so was Bernard Williams. And so that's where Bernard Williams gets the idea to, for, for his sort of very famous take on thick ethical, ethical concepts and ethics and the limits of philosophy, a lot of that is deeply inspired by the work of Foots and, and Murdoch. And, uh, we talked earlier about Anscombe's uh, modern moral philosophy and a similar story about the sort of meaninglessness absent a Christian framework of certain moral terms. That's the main theme of Alistair McIntyre's uh, After virtue, right? After virtue, as the Macintyre after virtue is that's the driving 
thought example, the, the, the thought experiments that sort of kickstarts the entire investigation is basically, basically this kind of Anscombian argument. You are currently working on a project together. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how that relates to the Somerville Group? Yeah, we focus on uh, the way in which um, not all in uh, this group, but uh, primarily Murdoch and Anscombe use historical arguments or or reason in terms of uh, historical frameworks and how they put history to use in their philosophical argumentation. So that would be one example, as we mentioned earlier, uh, of um, uh, um, using this uh, Wittgensteinian idea of frameworks, but in a more concrete historical way. And and you can see this um, in uh, papers published by Murdoch and Anscombe in the 50s especially. And these papers later became, as Fritz Fritz, uh, said, a very influential um, uh, later, much later uh, in in the 80s when um, uh, um, Charles Taylor wrote uh, Sources of the Self and uh, McIntyre wrote After Virtue. And also Bernard Williams, first, e- even later in the 90s, uh, he, he went through a historical turn, as it was uh, uh, called then in the 90s. But, and, then, and this historical turn, you could trace back to uh, these Somerville philosophers. Could you expand a bit on the historical arguments? Give some examples, perhaps, to be more concrete? Uh, yeah, there is this example uh, in uh, the paper Modern Moral Philosophy about uh, the divine uh, uh, law conception of uh, ethics. Uh, but uh, Murdoch, uh, she, even before Anscombe, this paper uh, was from '58, and even before that, Murdoch worked with historical uh, frameworks in uh, some papers. Maybe Fritz is yeah, so can some, say something some of, about these papers. Of course, some of Mur- Murdoch's early work on aesthetics also utilizes this kind of uh, historical narrative. It's the, the basic idea seems to be that there's a sort of a zeitgeist analysis, almost we can say, right? So we, we find this uh, current problem, something that is amiss with our framework right now. And For then, instance, so in in Murdoch's case, it's the absence of real live characters in contemporary uh, novels. The characters are dead. All all, all no- novels, Murdoch argues, are right of the, of the modern day are either sort of just thinly veiled journalistic reports. It's just uh, journalism dressed up to look like a like, like fiction. Right, that's the one version. The other version is really ideas-driven philosophical novel where the characters aren't really characters. They are um, they're just they stand for ideas. They're embodiment of ideas without real personalities. And in order to get back to the idea of 
of live personality. We need uh, to properly attend to the other. We, we must, as artists, see the other. And the only way to do that is to rekindle the beautiful with the sublime. And that uh, kickstarts Murdoch on a journey when she goes back and finds that this fundamental uh, confusion, which was the, the separation of the sublime and the beautiful, that occurs in Kant. And so we can go back to before that and fix it. And this gives us a sort of very, again, very sort of Platonistic idea of see, truly seeing the other. Love is the uh, recognition of the other as real. Um, so that is also sort of backtracking and trying to fix a current problem. Anscombe does the same in a way with uh, a, a radio address. Uh, it's, it's rather <laughs> rather humorous, actually, because uh, she raises the question, does Oxford moral philosophy, does Oxford philosophy corrupt the youth? Is, is the title of... Um, title of this this radio talk it's it's a deeply ironic radio talk that that the uh people at the bbc didn't really pick up on uh so they they let it they they aired this radio program and had they understood it i don't think they would have because basically what anscombe is saying is that the youth of today is already so corrupt so corrupted by the modern zeitgeist that there's nothing left for uh, for Oxford moral philosophy to do, they they can't corrupt the youth anymore. They're already sort of terrible because of of the the, the uh, zeitgeist. This is also that that kind of uh, looking at the whole system, and this again, I suppose, goes back to Wittgenstein, looking at our entire situation, finding problems with it. There's something there that just isn't right and then trying to backtrack in order to try to fix them. And the, that talk is interesting also uh, connecting back to this attitude within the whole group of rebelliousness that Anscombe actually deplores among the, the male Oxford philosophers of her time and and that, but uh, foot Mitchley uh, and Scumber Murdoch they they had a uh, another take on analytic philosophy so they represent an uh, an alternative form of analytic philosophy they 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 you could can't say that they imported some kind of continental philosophy to Britain but the idea of analytic philosophy was another than uh, the one uh, dominant in, uh, ex uh, especially at Oxford at the time with Ryle and Austin, which ended up in a very um, uh, specialized discussion of, uh, of uh, the use of terms uh, and uh, going through uh, uh, dictionaries was Austin's idea of doing philosophy. <laughs> so if you don't want to go through uh, dictionaries, what are you recommended reading for anyone interested in learning more about the, the Somerville group or the individual uh, persons in the group? 
There are a couple of recent uh, publications. So there's there's a, a book called by Benjamin Lipscomb called "The Women Are Up to Something," a very enticing title uh, that came out in 2021. And this year there was also a, a book called "Metaphysical Animals" by uh, Claire McCall and Rachel Wiseman. Uh, both are uh, excellent, I think. Real, in-depth, uh, easily readable, lovely uh, ways of paying attention to, to this group. And I'm, I'm, I'm full of admiration uh, for those. So that that would be a start. And then there is also, of course, the uh, the classics of, of these women themselves. We've got. Uh, Philippa Foote's Natural Goodness is a rather slim uh, volume. Uh, very influential. Uh, is, is slim equal to accessible? Yes, I, I would say so in this instance. It, it's not overly difficult. Something that is rather slim, but also overly difficult, maybe, is Anscombe's most famous work, Intention. But there are other much more uh, relatable papers uh with a lovely, very English dry wit running through them uh, that are also readily available in, in various collections of Anscombe's work. So you don't have to uh, tackle uh, intention first, but should you choose to do so, I can also recommend a, a reader's guide, uh, also written by Rachel Wiseman, and a sort of introduction to Anscombe's intention that does a very, very good job of, of uh, introducing it. Introducing it, yes. And when it comes to Mitchley, uh, her most sort of famous work is, is *Beast and Man*, an absolute monster of a book, because she is really sort of keen to really do this and look, look at everything, and therefore she sort of dabbles in a lot of specialist sciences. And she wants to do this properly so that the anthropologists can't attack her for anything. It's a monumentally, very long sort of editing process where, uh, where she covers all the bases. But uh, there's a short form of that kind of the main argument from Beast of Man in an article called The Concept of Beastliness. That's also very sort of uh, accessible. And speaking of short forms, if you could say three things only about the Somerville group that you would want people to take with them, what would that be? Well, I would try uh, again rebelliousness uh, and uh, um, this wider uh, outlook that I try to implant in into British philosophy. There's also a certain certain element of a there's a seriousness to it. They they make a very sort of excellent argument for why philosophy matters. So rebellious, serious, and also a wide outlook. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Peter, for handling the sound in the Lamb Studio. Thank you very much. <laughs>